For those who've been with us for a while as we've been trekking through Hebrews, we are near the end, brothers and sisters. We're going to finish chapter 12 today and then three weeks in chapter 13, and that will be it. And uh, to catch you up to speed, if you've not been with us, very, very briefly, Hebrews is written to Christians in the first decades of the church as they suffered persecution for the name of Christ. Most of the original audience were formerly Jews who had come to follow Jesus Christ, and because of that experienced persecution from their countrymen and from the Romans, losing their homes, their families, their jobs, their community, and under that pressure began to many of them leave the faith and go back to the Jewish ways of life uh, because it offered protection from persecution. And the author of Hebrews is writing to encourage them and remind them, no, no, don't turn away. Keep on the path before you. It is far greater than anything else you have before you, and it will pay off in the end. This is what God's people have been called to do in every generation. And those words apply to us today as well. Though our persecution may not be the same and may not match what our brothers and sisters in generations past have endured, we are always, always the people of God, always tempted to turn away, to give up, to stop pressing forward when the way of faith is difficult. And the word of God to us is endure, people of God. Endure. So hear now from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, the word of the Lord. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. In Romeo and Juliet, William Shakespeare writes, Love goes toward love as schoolboys from their books, but love goes away from its beloved the way that schoolboys go towards school with heavy looks. Or in more modern terms, my children are very quick to rush out to the car if we're going to get ice cream. But oh, how they trudge and drag their feet when it's time to go to the car, to go to school, or to the dentist, or anywhere that they don't want to be. And the reason is that the joy of our destination 
fuels our journey, does it not? If we are excited about where we're going, if we want to get there, if we're looking forward to it, does that not give us strength to continue in the journey? To move with perhaps a quicker step? We have, brothers and sisters, a worthy destination that should excite our journey. We should be eager and happy to walk the path before us despite its difficulty because we know where that road leads. And in case we are struggling with that, in case the road feels too difficult, the author of Hebrews, in addition to the many, many warnings that he has been giving God's people, also here includes a vision a vision of the certain, joyful, glorious end towards which we are moving, that we may with eagerness move forward. And so there are three things I want us to look at in this passage. Three things the author of Hebrews tells us to notice and take note of and to look at and to behold in order that we might be more eager to pursue our destination. And the first is, is he encourages us to behold the greater glory of our destination. The first few verses that we looked at here are almost a sensory overload of the ideas and images. But when you uh, sort through that, what it comes down to is this statement in verses 18 and 22. You have not come to what may be touched, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. The point of comparison here is that what we have through Jesus, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, greatly surpasses what came before. And so the author of Hebrews calls us to behold the greater glory of Zion, of our heavenly home, which should create in us a sense of awe that directs us and moves us and hurries us on our way. One of the great uh, business leaders of our time, Michael Scott, was once asked... Some of you know who that is. Was asked, would you rather people fear you or love you? And he answered wisely, I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. And when we think about God, the question is, do you, should we be afraid of God? And should that move us towards obedience? Or should we love God? And that's the comparison we even see here. These verses compare two times that God met with His people and the result of those encounters. The first in Mount Sinai when they received the covenant and the Ten Commandments after the Exodus. God gave His commandments and the people were afraid. And then the other appearance is in Mount Zion. In heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, where God's people are celebrating His presence in joy and in love. And so first, let's look at the old glory of the old covenant of Mount Sinai in verse 18. You have not come to what may be touched. That word may doesn't mean permission. It means possibility. You've not come to a tangible, physical, tactile mountain that you can touch as was Mount Sinai. A physical place where God physically appeared before his people. The old covenant under Moses was given at a physical location. And then he goes on to describe the experience of God's people as they received the commandments of Mount Sinai. In verses 18 and 19, drawing from the description in Exodus 19, he describes it as a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, 
tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. And I couldn't have planned it better in first service because just as I read that, everybody's alarms went off to let us know that we were under some sort of warning or watch. God appeared over Mount Sinai in cloud and thunder and fire. And the people responded appropriately with dread and fear. They were overwhelmed and they actually begged Moses to go up the mountain on their behalf. They said, don't let him talk to us anymore. We can't take this. It's too much. And rightly so, because God in his holiness had warned them that they would be struck down if in their sin they entered and and stepped on the mountain where the Lord appeared. So much so that even an animal that touched the mountain was to be punished. In verses 20 and 21, the author of Hebrews recounts that they could not endure the order that was given, that if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And indeed, it was so terrifying was the sight that even Moses, Moses who met with God face to face said, I tremble with fear. And so rightly does the psalmist ask in Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? The answer is only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. If your hands are not clean, if your heart is not pure, and you approach the presence of God, you will be struck down, for the holiness of God does not tolerate, cannot tolerate, the presence of sin. So with that in mind, this image of the awe-inspiring and fear and dread-inducing appearance of the holiness of God, consider what the author of Hebrews is now saying with that. The point he's making is, That's not even what you're faced with. Mount Sinai and the cloud and the thunder and the dread and the fear, that's not what's before you. That's not what's calling you forward. You're faced with something with greater glory than that, which is at the same time great news and a bit terrifying. After all, what was on the mountain was only just a hint and a shadow of the reality of God's glory which would level us if we faced it. Do you know that nowadays, if you want to go to a theme park, and it used to be you'd go to the park and you'd see a ride and you didn't know what to expect. And you'd go on the ride and let's say you hate going upside down. What you have to do is you stand outside as people are leaving. Hey, does this thing go upside down? Does this go upside down? Now what they do is they put videos of the rides online and you can be standing there and you look and you're like, okay, let me watch a video of that. Okay, yeah, I don't think I can handle that. Yeah. And that's all it is, which is cool for people like me who don't like that kind of stuff. But is watching the video of a roller coaster the same as experiencing it? You know, if you've got this little three by five screen and you're watching the twists and the turns and the loops and the drops, are you feeling the same thing? Are you experiencing the wind? And you? No, you're not. And likewise, the, the glimpses we get of God's glory, even at Sinai, are akin to watching the video of a roller coaster versus actually experiencing it. Rightly did Job say, as he was reflecting on the amazing works of God, he said, behold, these are the outskirts of his ways. How small of a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand that? At Sinai, they still saw yet a whisper. 
Who then can understand the thunder of his power? And yet you, Christian, you are called to approach God not through a mediary Moses. You who approach God through Christ have come to a burning mountain that cannot even be touched. You have come to the real thing. Verse 22, you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And he goes on and and gives image after image that we could spend hours here unpacking. And I'm just going to skim over the surface of what he describes here. He says, you've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Festal meaning celebratory dressed up for celebration, not like the angels at Mount Sinai there to declare judgment and warning, but angels there in celebration. You've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That word assembly, if you were here in Sunday school last week, is ecclesia, the church. You have come to the gathering, the assembling of those who belong to God, the firstborn whose names are enrolled in heaven. And you've come to God, the judge of all. This is not just a city buzzing with celebration from angels and saints, but God himself is present, living with his people. And yet he is still the holy, righteous judge. And therefore, the next part is that we have come to see spirits of the righteous made perfect. Because no sin and no unrighteousness can approach God, Unclean hands and impure hearts may not ascend the hill of the Lord. If any are to be present, if any human is to be present in the new Jerusalem, they must be made perfect. Not themselves already perfect, not approaching as perfect in themselves, but they are righteous because they are made perfect by God. And lastly, in verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is speaking of the sprinkled blood of the covenant. If you've been with us the past four chapters of Hebrews, you've seen this over and over, this idea that the the role of blood is essential because blood contains the life. And sin means that we must die. The penalty, the wages of sin is death. And so God in His grace from the very first sin of Adam and Eve matched that call for death that call for blood with the sacrifice of an animal as he took an animal skin to clothe their nakedness and hide their shame so that they did not need to hide. From the very beginning where there is sin, there is blood. And then he gave the sacrificial system to show that there must be blood if you are to approach me. But even that was just a shadow and a copy and a symbol and a pointer to the blood of Jesus. That sprinkled blood which says, now the sacrifice has happened. Now the way is opened. Now God's people may approach because they have been made perfect by the blood. And it is a better blood than the blood of Abel. We looked at Abel a few weeks back in Hebrews 11. Abel, whose blood spoke of the suffering of the innocent as he was murdered by Cain. His blood was taken. He is the victim. But Jesus' blood speaks a different message. Jesus is a victor, not a victim. Jesus' blood was given. It was not taken And His blood declares salvation, not suffering. And what that means for us is that as we approach God, fear is removed. No longer do we need to approach as the people did to Sinai in trembling and dread lest their sins be punished by a holy God. Instead, we approach because the blood has already been shed. It has been spilled on our behalf. 
And so the Apostle John in 1 John 4 describes it this way. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Now, now the, in, at Sinai, they also knew and were told that God is love, but they only saw the fear and the dread and the punishment because of their sin. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. This is God dwelling with His people. By this is love perfected in us. Perfected means completes its work, does what it's supposed to do, so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. How can we ascend the hill of the Lord in confidence? Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment people of God trembled at Sinai because the righteous, holy, well-deserved punishment of God would have struck them down. Fear has to do with punishment. So they approached God rightly with fear, but you've not come to that. You have come to a different mountain, a Mount Zion, where fear has been driven out because fear has to do with punishment and the blood of Christ tells you that the punishment has already been carried out. There is no more punishment for the children of God in Jesus Christ. As we approach Him now, fear is removed because we approach through Jesus, trusting what God has done, not what we will do. We should therefore be more joyful and excited about what is ahead of us because God's perfect love through Jesus drives out our fear. At Sinai, they were afraid because God is holy and will punish sin. But we are joyful and we are excited because His perfect love drives out fear. So brothers and sisters, behold the greater glory. What the law commanded, holiness, perfection, it could not do, but the blood of Jesus has done it already, has made you holy and righteous in the sight of God. So what God accomplishes through Jesus is no longer condemnation, it is salvation. It is not judgment, it is recreation. Does that not beckon you forward? Does that not make you more excited to move forward? You're not moving forward to a dreadful thing, you are moving forward to a festival to a celebration, to joy. And you need not feel fear if you approach through Christ. Behold the greater glory. Behold also the greater message. In the next verse, verse 25, see that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. Now we have to tread carefully here. Because we don't want to give the impression that the Word of God in the Old Testament through the prophets and, and Moses was any less true, any less divine, or any less authoritative than the Word of God in the New Testament. And yet there is a difference. At Sinai, the Lord spoke through Moses, and then Moses told the people the Word of God. Even though it came through a human messenger, it was still God's divine, authoritative, and binding word. And disobedience was punished at times by God Himself directly. But when God spoke through Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament, was His word any less true? Did it have any less authority than what Jesus spoke? No. No, it did not. The, the red letters in your Bible, if you've got that kind of Bible, the red letters have no more authority or truth or divine origin than all the other letters. 
We have the word of God now, however, through a different messenger. And it makes it a greater message. And let's look why. The difference is that the messenger now is God himself in human form. He is the living word that speaks a message to us. In a, little, in a way, it's a little bit like this. When I will send one of my children to tell another one of my children, hey, go tell your sister that dinner's ready and she needs to turn off the TV. Nine times out of ten, you want to guess what happens? TV doesn't turn off. And then a few minutes later, I come in and I say, I said, turn off the TV and come to dinner. Okay, I didn't say it the first time directly, but I said it through my messenger. But when I walk in the room, suddenly it lands different, doesn't it? It hits a little bit different. Then nine times out of ten, my will is carried out. And then that's what's going on here. Same message, same origin, same authority. But the one who delivers it can make a difference in how we hear it and receive it. But there's another way in which the message is greater. And we have to back up a verse to verse 24. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We're not just talking here about the words of Jesus, the teachings, the message of Jesus. Because if Jesus is just a great moral teacher, we have no hope. If all we have from Jesus are instructions and stories and commandments, then all we have really is another law that we are obligated to keep and which in the end will condemn us for our failure. No, it is not just a word that comes to us through this message. It is an action. The blood of Jesus speaks. So what is the message that the blood of Jesus speaks? It is a message of salvation. Because as I said a minute ago, the blood shows that the death has occurred. That someone has taken our place in death so that sin no longer keeps us from a holy, holy, holy God. Without the message of that blood, we are left outside of the celebration. We have no chance of getting through the gates when we arrive at our final destination. And so the message of Jesus is not just words, but also his actions, dying, in our, dying for our sins. And that message is the final word of God for salvation. It's not, here's another idea. Here's another something you can try. It's, this is the way to be saved. Which is why we are warned in verse 25. You know, if, if the, the disobedience under the law given at Sinai was punished, and they couldn't escape that, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Now, I, want to, I want to clarify here because very often we hear and even at times speak the message of grace as if it means no obligation. God is gracious, therefore we have no duty before him. We have no obligation. While it is true that God does not save us based on our works, God's grace is given in order that we may do what he desires. Listen to the warning of Jesus. We're familiar, you know, we think John 3:16, God loved the world, he gave his son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But a few verses after that, listen to what the words of God says. John 3:36. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son 
shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Just leave that verse up there because I want to look at it for a minute. The way the verse begins, we would expect this as our contrast. Whoever believes in the Son has life, and whoever does not believe in the Son does not see life, right? That's the contrast we expect. But look at how Jesus says it in John 3. Belief is contrasted with what? Obey. As if they're the same thing. If you believe, you have life. If you don't obey, you don't have life. In, in the view of Jesus, which is the view of reality and the view we should hold, there is no category where you believe Jesus, but do not obey Jesus. They are one and the same. To believe is to obey. And so the warning that we have here, the message is, there is one way of salvation. The blood of Jesus is all you need. It is enough. It is full. It is sufficient. But it is the only way. And if you reject obeying Jesus, then you are rejecting believing in Jesus. And there is no escape because there's no other way given under heaven whereby which we may be saved. But the good news is those who believe in Jesus, you who have trusted in him and follow his path, though it may be difficult, though it may be challenging, though you do it imperfectly, you are promised salvation through the blood of Jesus because that blood speaks. It says it is finished. It says I have washed them clean. It says they are righteous because of what Christ has done, not because of what they have done. That's a good message. How will you escape if you reject that message? The author of Hebrews says you won't. But for those who've received it, move forward with joy because the blood has done the work. Lastly, we behold the greater glory. We behold that greater message. And now we behold the greater city. A city which is greater because it endures. It lasts forever. And to, to illustrate that, he digs back into the words of the prophets in the Old Testament. If you remember the history of the kingdom of Israel, they were delivered through the exodus through, from Egypt and and arrived in the promised land and by God's power they conquered the promised land and built it up and over the years eventually you have David and Solomon and they built it up to this magnificent kingdom powerful in the whole region and yet over the years they disobey they turn away from God and despite his repeated warnings they persist in their disobedience and the final judgment on their sin takes place which is exile they're conquered by Babylon and exiled out of the promised land and held captive in a foreign land for 70 years. At the end of 70 years, the Lord brings them back. And we see in Ezra and Nehemiah that they begin to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. They begin to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the city itself that had been destroyed, which is great and wonderful, except those who remember what it used to be and remember what it used to look like are weeping not tears of joy, weeping over how pathetic the new city is. It does not compare to what it should be. And God, through His prophets, tells His people, I'm not done with it yet. And through the prophet Haggai, in, in Haggai chapter 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, 
In a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, meaning come into Jerusalem. And I will fill this house, the temple, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than it used to be, greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts. And this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God promises he's going to shake off, which means remove everything that is not meant to last. Everything that is good and righteous and beautiful and holy will remain as a part of God's eternal kingdom. So the author of Hebrews quotes this promise here in our text today. The promise of shaking away the old and hoping in the beautiful thing that remains. In verses 26 and 27, he looks back to Haggai and says, you know, at Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, I will shake the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. People of God, that's for you. That promise is for you today, just as much as it was to the original recipients of this letter. That phrase, yet once more, doesn't mean just like one more time. We're going to do it again. Second verse, same as the first. No, it means one more time. I'm going to finish it off. One last time, I'm going to shake things. And it's going to be a final shaking. It's going to result in the removing of all that was not meant to be permanent. The kingdoms of man, human glories, temporary powers and authorities will drop like overripe fruit that that I'm going to find all over my yard when I get home because of the wind shaking the trees in my yard, only what is part of God's kingdom will remain. So much of what you see and experience today will be shaken. Nations will be shaken and will not remain. Economies, powers, governments will be shaken and will not remain. Celebrities human solutions to our problems, ungodly worldviews, and even things that we are tempted to trust in, whether it's our goals, our safety nets, the things that we trust in to give us peace, they can and they will be shaken and they will not remain. And maybe you have felt the hints of that. Maybe you have felt the tremors under your feet of some of the things that you've trusted in shaking. Those are gracious warnings from God that you are not standing on a firm foundation that will remain. This is what it means in verse 29 when the author says that our God is a consuming fire. He will consume and devour just like a fire burns up everything that is not lasting. It's it's an image almost of, of gold being refined in the fire so that all that is not pure is melted away and only what is good remains And so the promise is to fear not, despair not. If you are standing on that firm foundation, if you are living for the city that will not be shaken, then you need not fear. And that's the message we need to hear. That we need not fear even when the evil seem to prevail. Because they will be destroyed when the Lord returns yet once more to shake the earth. Uh, I want to quote at length from Psalm 11 which is when we first shut down years and years ago, shut down for the the, uh, pandemic, and we took a few weeks off for meeting in person. This is the passage I preached on the first Sunday that we did it 
online because it, it seems so relevant to those days and it seems no less relevant to me today. Listen to these words. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Hang on to that back, 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 back slide. There we go. Is that not the feeling we get? That our foundations are being destroyed. What can we do? We just have to go for refuge. Flee, get away, hide. What can the righteous do? When the foundations are destroyed, what hope do we have? Look what the psalmist says. <laughs> the Lord's in his temple. Don't worry about it. The Lord's throne is in heaven and his eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. The psalmist is saying, don't put your hope in what people can take away. In the stability, the familiarity, the accessible. Build on the foundation that cannot and will not be shaken. Your hope is in a city that will not pass away. Not the city of man. Not in politics. Not in prosperity. Not in the approval or acceptance of earthly powers. Your hope is in the unshakable kingdom of God. And so in verse 28, he says, because of that, let's be grateful. Let's be grateful that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's a a great phrase. We have received. That's past tense. He's speaking about it like it already happened. So have we received it or are we still waiting for it? Is the kingdom of God something we already have? Or is it something that we're still waiting for? Biblically, it's both. At the same time, we have been given the kingdom. We've received it. We are made citizens the kingdom is present in Jesus. The kingdom advances through the work of the church. The kingdom of God is among you, Scripture says, but yet we are not home. We are still waiting for it to be our experienced, our lived reality. We are soldiers in the victorious army whose king has already won the day. And we are just marching back home. And all that is asked of us is we don't give up on the march back to the city we see on the horizon. And in the meantime, the author of Hebrews instructs us in verse 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That word worship is a tricky one. Because when you hear that word worship, I imagine for many of us, the first thing that comes to mind is Sunday morning. Or perhaps a, a specific genre of music or a specific radio station that you can tune into. That's worship. And so when we see offered to God acceptable worship, we think, am I singing the right words? Am I in tune? Am I raising my hands enough or not too much? Am I clapping or am I not supposed to do that? Uh, what is acceptable worship? And that's not what this is about at all. That's a, a sliver on the spectrum of what the Bible means when it says worship God. Romans 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
Paul says worship, the worship God is looking for is putting your life on the altar so that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, it is to the glory of God. All things you do are to be worshipped because you commit them to God. So when we are called to offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, this is talking about obedience. This is talking about loving others as He's loved us. This is talking about turning away from sin. This is talking about finding joy with God's people and much, much more. And we do it because we are are beholding a city that cannot be shaken, that is our true home. And we are saying, that's my citizenship. I'm going to speak that language, not the language out here. I'm going to take over those customs and habits and traditions, not what's here on the journey. I'm going to live like a city of that kingdom, not this one. And when we do that, it fuels a joyful journey because we're getting closer and closer to home. So I leave you with this exhortation today, which we're going to reinforce in our song in a moment. Worship. Worship. Worship with your singing. Worship with your speech. Worship with your money. Worship with your parenting. Worship by how you love your neighbor well. Worship by how you forgive and pray for your enemy. Worship by finding joy in what lasts and not in what's temporary. Worship by walking in obedience to God and not being conformed to the world around you. Worship in reverence and in awe because you know where you're headed. You've heard what is promised. You've seen what you've been given and you know what is coming to be. And so let us love, let us sing, let us wonder, let us praise our Savior's name. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood and he will surely bring us home to God. Let that fuel your journey, brothers and sisters, when you are tempted to lag behind, when you are weary on the way, behold the greater glory of the greater city that comes to you through the blood of Christ and move forward with joy. Pray with me that by His Spirit we would be able to do so. O God, our Father, You've not made us for this life. You've made us for a greater one. You've not made us for this world. You've made us for a perfect one. And we groan and we are weary and we are tired, Lord, And you have something better waiting for us. And you have given us all that we need to be faithful until we reach that destination. Give us a clear vision, O Lord, of the glorious, unshakable destination. And strengthen us until we reach it. We know this is possible because of your Spirit given to us in Christ Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen.